Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Simon Lovell. Hello, Simon. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for uh, having me. It's You're welcome. You're welcome. You're the director of All the Ordinary Angels, a original stage play by Nick Leather and now adapted to screen, for screen by Peter Spencer. Um, yep. Do you yep. want to give us a brief synopsis of what All the Ordinary Angels is about? Sure. Well, as you're saying, it's uh, originally adapted from a play written by Nick Leather uh, in 2005, uh, then adapted by Peter Spencer for the screenplay um, for the film. So basically, the gist of the story is it revolves around a family, uh, the Raffers, which own an ice cream factory, uh, better known as gelato in the Italian traditional way of making it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes to really a head-on crisis with the business going under, really because of... Uh, Supermarkets selling ice cream for very low cost, and the whole tradition and uh, the whole tradition and whole um, theme of ice cream really dying out. So uh, Giuseppe, the father, who uh, has brought up his two children, uh, Lino and Rocco, two very different characters, gets to a point when he pitches a competition to them both and says, "You know, in three months, I want you to make your own gelato, uh, sell your own gelato, and the person who sells the most at the end of the three months uh, gets the keys to the kingdom, has the business." The, per- the perfect ticking clock for a movie. Exactly. <laughs> right, now, before we go into more detail about you making that film, that was your directorial debut for a feature film, was it not? It was, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So let's have a quick sort of rewind on you as a filmmaker. Um, was what does, does your development include any formal education in terms of film and TV making? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously being 16 and being at college, uh, I studied mainly art, uh, media studies and theatre studies, because uh, I always knew that I wanted to get into film. So it was really uh, combining those three things, really, that I thought I needed to have the skills to, to become a filmmaker. Hmm. Uh, after that, acquiring the uh, qualifications I needed, I was able to pursue it to the University of Central Lancashire, uh, studying moving image, which is mainly production, not necessarily theory, which a lot of the film studies courses have nowadays. But it was full on, you know, production practical. Okay. The, the three processes really of a term would be pre-production, production, and post-production. Brilliant. Um, so that was something that I, you know I was uh, recommended for. I went for that, and you know had a blast. And uh, I was making a lot more films outside of that because I did feel the course was going a bit slow because you were only making maybe two films. 
So uh, outside that, I managed to get a few connections working on promotion videos for bars of, that friends owned within yeah. Preston City Centre and had a lot of those screened on the big inner city screen. So that kind of gave me the confidence to, to kind of go out and straight after my degree. Um, what, well, can I just ask you what, did you, what did you think was the value of doing the degree for you as to develop as a filmmaker? What did it allow you to do that maybe had you not well, done it, you wouldn't? It, it, I think having a degree, it is, I mean, obviously now it's a lot different because education is a lot more expensive. Uh, yeah. You know, back then it didn't really have the platforms that I would say that are kind of more of a favorite, you know, helping people nowadays. In terms of YouTube, you have an audience, you can connect to the audience and you can get a response from an audience. Yeah. You know, when you're uh, at a degree level, you are learning almost the old way of, of, of getting into the industry, which is, you know, working your way up from maybe a camera assistant to a cameraman. Where nowadays, because technology is there, and you, you know have like you know Canon 5Ds that have the broadcast quality, you're able to kind of multitask nowadays. So you know the thing that I got out of it really was able to use equipment and just to learn the process in terms of you know visual graphics and color grading. So in that sense, it was very useful. Okay. So what was what was when with you saying you did all that work outside? What did that lead to after after uh, Well, that leaded to me having a good showreel. You know, I mean, I obviously had the film, my student films, but mainly I had labels, I had brands that I've been working for, you know, and my, my job as a director is to, you know, captivate an audience. So, you know, you're kind of planting an idea or a seed in their head, you know, very much that advertising is connected to, you know, creating characters on, on the screen for film. So mm. that kind of really developed my skills in that way. And, um, you know, when I left, I had a showreel, so I was able to get a job straight away and broadcast. Hmm. Again, that was just expanding all my skills, and I didn't really want to go into film straight away because I always kind of because I worked for a few studios like ITV, etc. It kind of sometimes it did scare me the process of how slow things moved. Not necessarily because of ITV, but because you know that creative process sometimes got lost. I mean, sometimes I'd be there, for example, and I'd be doing a second unit shoot for maybe twelve hours, and you know the setups for that would be maybe twelve and. For me, that drove me insane because I was used to doing 35, 40. And, you know, I, I just found that, you know, learning all of the skills gave me the ability to, as I say, go out and make a, a part-time film of my own to, again, have the ammunition to be able to try and get a feature film in the future and say, listen, I've put this together, um, you know, put a story together visually, you know. So that was my idea. What, what would you point as being some of your key stepping stones then from, from that point to where you are now, mate, with, with all, all the ordinary angels? What, what were you, I believe you did, you know, working for people like Everton and, and the like, doing their corporate videos and stuff. What did you learn from all that? I think, as I say, uh, being adaptable, really. That's the main thing that I learned is adapting to everything. I mean, the great thing about working in football, you work with players. Uh, mm. You have to approach them a lot differently to how, say, you were an actor. Mm -hmm. Also working on say charity videos and working on those reality things, you know, you can't ever ask anyone to perform that, but you can <laughs> you can edit that and you can make it, you know, emotionally engaging, which is what it's supposed to do when you're obviously asking people for help in charity videos, etc. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, again, adapting to a lot of things really. That was the the main thing as well. Okay, okay. So let's fast forward to all the ordinary angels then. And this is you. You've you've been. I mean, first off, how were you chosen to be the director for this? How did well, that come about? Yeah, as I say, um, when I heard about the position, I, you know, the BYFA, the organisation itself, giving yeah. kids an opportunity to work on a feature film, yeah. that was 
that was the main thing. I mean, I love teaching. I do a lot of guest tutorials, etc. Universities, and that was the one thing that I really liked is, is encouraging and inspiring younger filmmakers. Mm. Because, as you say, it's not an easy industry to get you know into. And when I was growing up, I used to get my monthly subscriptions of Empire and, and Total Film. And on the back of it, there used to be, I think it's the New York Film Academy. And one of the pictures on the article was this kid behind, these two kids behind a big, big camera, 35mm camera, awesome map box, awesome lens. But in the UK, it never felt that we had the opportunity to do that. It was always like, I'd always look at it every month and go, oh, you know, I'd love to do that, you know, as a kid growing up wanting to make films. Yeah. Um, and when I heard about the BYFA, that vision was, was the first thing that came in my head, was, was looking at that article and, and remembering that and, you know, being able to apply for something like was was just appealing to me really um being able to have young people that you're inspiring to make movies but also the creative um energy those people have at that age you know that they have so many ideas and they just want you know somewhere to channel it which this kind of thing was ideal so it was it was a case of me applying for it like i would a normal film with my show reel and and, and going in and, and putting my pitch on how i would work in that environment as a director and you know, as a mentor, etc. Okay, so let's uh, just just remind us then what what's the acronym that you you, you said be what the uh, what's the name of the organisation behind it? Uh, the organisation behind it is the British Youth Film Academy, which okay. is uh, basically they make a film, a feature film every year, yeah, um, and they give the opportunity for young people from the age of sixteen to twenty five to actually come on the feature film shoot itself over mm. a seven week period in the summer. I think it's from the end of June to to mid August. In that meantime, obviously, we're working on it solely from uh, getting the script in January. We worked with Peter on that. I think we did we did three drafts in the end, um, and we obviously go into the post production, sorry, the, the pre production, design, concepts, location, scouting, and then the kids come on and have a have a seven week shoot, and then in August it's we're left alone to uh, carry on with post production then and <laughs> do pickups and shoots, and they come to the screening and they've had a wonderful time in those seven weeks, and we've been. Working our uh, rears off for about a year. <laughs> so talk us through your process then as the director. So you've been chosen and you get given that first script. What's your what What's your first, in your mind, what's your first consideration when you sit down to read the script for the first time? I mean, th this was obviously an adaption as well because we were adapting it from the original play in 2005. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had the, I was able to read the original play as well, uh, hard mm -hmm. copy back and, when I read it, it, it was really, I was really taken back by how engaging the story was, um, and how good it would be for film as well. Mm -hmm. uh, then I got the screenplay, because I only got initially about four scenes. Um, so it was hard for me to place the whole thing, because when you do read the play, you can imagine it on, I didn't have the um, good nature of actually being able to watch it on the stage, but you can, you get a sense of um, where things are done theatrically in a very confined space, where when it comes to in a film, you have to visually see that. For example, you know, there's a, there's a, a scene at the end of the film. Uh, it's almost like a raid where, you know, visually on a film, you have to see that. When it comes to stage, you know, you can have that confined area where the characters can hear things by sound effects. So, yeah. you know, that was the thing that we had to really um, draw back on and work out how we'd do and bring it into more of reality because at the end of the day, the subject that we're dealing with it is has got consequences. So... It is a playful idea at the beginning, but, you know, when reality hits, then we have to bring that, you know, to the screen, really, rather than having that comical feel to it. OK, so what was your what was your initial sort of... So when you've read the screenplay, then, what's your is your first conversation with the screenwriter, or...? 
is is it back with the producers? No, we had it with the producers. We had the first draft, and we went for a second draft. Mm-hmm. And we worked out a lot of things, um, toned down a few of the characters, um, turned down a bit of the relationships. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the play. Are you familiar I'm with not, it? No, 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 no. No. So it was kind of like, you know, a lot of things felt a little exaggerated uh, still from the stage sense of things. So, uh, you know, Peter was able to bring that back and um, we worked from there, really, and um, just started working on the material. The next stage was really um, dependent on who we were going to cast in the roles because... The roles that we were casting for, they, they really weren't easy, easy uh, roles to really find actors for. What, what, uh, what makes what made them difficult? Just Rocco, for example. I mean, you know, to have, you know, the I can't I can't think of the word without being a like Rocco, really nasty. Um, <laughs> without being arrogant, uh, he was a very arrogant character. You know, yeah. um, I kind of when I first read it, I was more, almost sort of like a James uh, James Dean character. That's that's okay. what screen. And I think that's probably what it was kind of depicted as in uh, in the play. So, you know, we really wanted to find some good actors. And we also wanted to give the opportunity to students as well to audition for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went around the UK and we auditioned about 117 people in the end for three roles. Wow. Which were the initial um, roles for Lulu, Rocco and uh, Lino. Okay. The other characters that we needed, we needed a bit more um, older characters. So we needed to go outside that really and, and look for... Uh, some really good actors for that. And how did you find? I mean, how did you find that sort of process with those kind of numbers to crunch to get down to three? Well, I didn't think it would go on that long. As I say, it was just you know with the Lena character. Um, I think Lulu was actually the first one in my head I cast when I saw Amy Amy Butler. Yeah. Uh, we saw her in Nosley, yeah. which is the actual our base. It ended up actually being our production base. That. Yeah. And um, yeah, she was the one. She came off. She actually auditioned for the wife originally. Uh, which was far too old a character for her. So uh, we called her back. And, you know, I think with the wife character, that was one that I saw was really important because we were uh, intermingling proper actors because we had Mark Bonner as the head teacher as well, who was really, really uh, brilliant that he was able to be part of the film. Yeah. Well, as Lucy Gaskell. Um, so when we had the students, we wanted to have people, actors that would also inspire them and to bring them up, you know, to raise the bar a bit. So when it came to doing Bernie, uh, I hired, I did a casting call out. We got quite a few uh, brilliant responses. And with Rebecca, I did an audition with her and I wanted her to make anyone feel comfortable. I didn't want her to be placed with Rocco because Edward, who was a student who I cast, was just, as I say, it was his first film. He'd done a few stage plays, but I wanted her to support him in that role as well. You know, oh, okay. So every scene that Rebecca was on, I mean, even, it just proved it when we were filming. I mean, we managed to film a few of her scenes quite early on, and it was quite the emotional scenes as well. And I think every every take, bang, just the waterworks would come out, <laughs> and every every one of them. Uh, to that point, I even I couldn't find Edward at that point. I went in went into uh, the office. I was like, right, you ready? And he was on Google trying to do methods out of cry. Yeah. I think he just he was so taken back by how good she was and how professional, and how actors are able just to turn it on. You yeah, know? it was it was brilliant to see. So that was. That made it a lot easier. The fact that I knew that half of them were going to be students and half of them were probably going to be proper actors with with some good experience behind them. Now, now you you alluded to it earlier on with the the nature of the seven week shoot drawing on sort of local colleges for I'm guessing your your human resources that are on the shoot. Yeah. Um, I, I figure your your heads of department were people you recruited yourself, or was that from that pool of people? No, we got. Um, in terms of the majority of our crew, 
our producer Nick, he recommended we had a look at a few showreels for the director of photography. Yeah. We knew that we wanted to have a specific look for it because it was one of those where, for example, I like to shoot a lot of uh, handheld. This didn't. Requ- this kind of story didn't require a single handheld shot, really. Okay. The way it was kind of presented, it was it was supposed to be graceful. It was supposed to be a slight build up. Yeah. Um, and I, we spoke to Alan McLaughlin, who Nick recommended, and he was incredible. Alan was um, just won a BAFTA for young talent as well, and he was just. Um, I met Alan, and he told me his picture on it, and it was pretty much similar to ours in terms of uh, the way we wanted to shoot the film. Um, so we hired Alan straight off. Also yes. hired one of my sound guys who's been working on with me for a few years, Paul Caton, okay. who worked on the sound design for that. Um, uh, and also through that, we managed just to, as I say, we just managed to filter out each department by having applications, really, for the key people, like makeup, like costume. Um, so, yeah, it worked out well. Can I ask, I mean, sound is, is one of those, obviously, it's, it's, it's never the obvious thing, because well, people think of film visually, but, you know, the, the truth is, you can watch something that doesn't look very good, and if the sound's great, you might get by, but you could watch something that looks picture perfect, and if the sound's terrible, it's very hard to watch. So, what were your conversations like around sound design for the movie? What were you... Well, in all honesty, sound was with us in terms of post-production as well. Yeah. Because when Paul took it on, <laughs> what with me previously, uh, and with our previous project, which is a reason which uh, I'm sure I'll give you a link to, is uh, we were very... We did a lot of sound design. Some scenes, we, we stripped the sound entirely, and we did it did it that way. Okay. Just, just, to, just to create more, because sound is 70% of a movie, if not more. That's yeah. the thing that is overlooked, as you're saying. Mm. Uh, and with this one, I mean, even in the script, one of the first things I drew was um, the raid, which was the factory being raided by hundreds of, of kids. Yeah. To, to this ice cream. And I think I think obviously when the BYF, they saw that as well, I think they could see that I was, was serious about getting a lot of people in that frame because that was the bit in the play you didn't see. That was the bit in the film you have to see. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Um, and that's the bit, you know, technically it would have to be, you know, designed better, you know, communication because we're working with so many kids. And, you know, working with that many people, you only have three takes, really, because then the concentration starts to go, people of that age as well, but we needed a variety of age ages in that. Uh, but in terms of sound, Paul knew that that was going to be the biggest challenge for him because it's it's not only that, it's the build-up to it. Mm. And there were scenes where the kids aren't driving. You know, our Edward is 17, he, he can't even drive, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's in a van being shaken. Yeah. I'm shooting everything out second unit and... Um, you know, that's the bit where we were we were really, when it came up just to the screening the other week, we were right up to the end because the sound was so complicated when it came comes to a film like this because you're dealing with so many shots with so many people in it and so many environments like the football stadium um, and it's, you know, the schools and it, it's just one of them where it's, uh, he knew how difficult it was going to be and, you know, I think if you talk to him, he'll, he'll tell you how difficult it was. <laughs> so, um, you the, the the number of people you were drawing on to, to to make up sort of part of your cast and crew were coming from local local colleges, as you say. How how did that affect the way you were able to sort of direct the production? I mean, as I said, we we still had the, the heads of the departments. They were the mm. professionals in the industry. Yeah, they're the ones we went out and made sure that these people, because they were heads of each department, had to be the best of what we could get. Yeah, uh, which we got some incredible people. Uh, and then in terms of working with it. Uh, you know, especially with the camera department, for example, Alan. Alan was obviously one of the most popular ones because he was, you know, we, he was brilliant because he brought a sponsor vision, um, a 
sponsorship from Panavision, so we, okay. were, we were given some incredible toys to play with. Brilliant. Uh, which, again, is more appealing for people to learn. So we had a lot of people wanting to, you know, shadow Alan in that respect, you know, work on a dolly. We had a lot of dolly shots in it. And it was, it was. But to, to be honest with you, I was watching the last scene the other day, and that's one of my favourites um, in terms of visually, in terms of everything. And at that point, and I think it was on day 12, that maybe, mm. 24, that was the time where there was people... You know, like Adam and Ryan, who were on the um, camera department, they were they were pulling focus and doing the tracks themselves. They were doing everything themselves uh, because they, they got so into it and they were working. You know, one thing that we like to do is we start people running fast on the production for the first few days. Uh, that way, they get a gist of the rhythm and how it's working on a set. So when they they come in every day, the you know those boys were ready. They were in the they were in the van ready to go to set before anyone else. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we needed to get into them. Um, was keeping that, you know, that pacing and professional, the professionalism really, regardless of the age or being a student, they, they had that though, and that's what they were there for. They were there to learn, and they loved every minute of it really well, and they were essential part of the crew. Now, I get the impression that the the, the, the raid was a, was a key part of the of the film, but but when when, when just just looking back at the looking back at the script when you were when you were when you were designing your shot list and, and, and storyboarding or whatever, you get there. Um, <clears throat> what seemed like to be the, the insurmountable and, and, and cause obviously money, money is an object. There is no, there is no idea of infinite amounts of money because every film, whether it be, you know, a $300 million movie or whatever, all the other angels cost, there's still a finite budget to, for the film to work with him. What, what were, what was the sort of big challenge for you, and, and, and maybe how, explain how you overcome it? Um, I mean, one of the big challenges was, I mean, the first thing in the script was to have an ice cream factory, which is the, uh, <laughs> when, yeah. when you read it, it's like, okay. Um, so, yeah, it was a case of us, straight away, we were looking for the ice cream factory. That was my, I had so many locations in my head from other productions, you know, locations I didn't get a chance to shoot at that I already knew that we're probably going to be locked off for this. Yeah, uh, and also we had to do a lot near Nosley. That was another thing we were restricted because when it comes to, you know, getting a crew to a location, setting up, and with our crew it was a lot bigger as well. You know, we had two big minibuses, uh, so when you go out, it is difficult. So with the factory, we wanted somewhere we could work for a week at least. Yeah. Um, so initially we went around, and we there were so many places we went. Most places were unsafe; they were about to fall down um, because. The way it was written in the script, it was the, the reason why it was dying. I mean, these guys couldn't afford a new van. They couldn't afford anything. Uh, you know, the sign was, was barely stuck up on the wall anymore. It was it was one of those where half the machinery was closed down. That's one thing that we thought. We thought, if we can't afford that much machinery in terms of set, what we'll do is we'll get a load of shapes, we'll put blankets over it like they've been... They're not able to operate anymore because they have no money to fix them. Sure. So, you know, that's the creative solution. We had no money host to, to do stuff and do a Tim Burton set or anything. So it was, we did that a few times um, because it adds charm to it as well, to be honest with you. Uh, initially, the set we wanted, we were going to go for a bigger set build, but it had skylights. So it was just looking too modern, especially from the exterior. Because when we got the exterior, which is in Wigan, Lots of mills in Wigan, so yeah, yeah. one of our execs, Martin, picked the perfect one. So all it was a case of putting up a composite of a sign up there, and it was perfect. It had a loading bay, everything. Uh, but again, the interior was difficult. 
And it was, no, it was only in prep week, the week before we were shooting, we actually changed locations. We went for a, a different one that someone suggested that they forgot to tell us for eight weeks. So we managed to uh, to switch locations and pretty much in terms of building it, I, luckily my next door neighbour was chucking a load of stuff out from his, his house. Hmm. So it was just a case of building it, you know, water tanks, um, anything that looks machinery-like. You know, we stole a lot from the art department in colleges, like stepping ladders, just to give like a girder effect of more of an industrial feel to it. Right. Uh, and again, office-wise, it was nice because the, the key of it was to have, we had a lot of scenes in an office, we had a lot of uh, scenes in the factory production space. Mm. And for us, in terms of shooting it and everything like that, we wanted to shoot them as part of one. So we needed to separate it. So it's one set within two. So we, we could actually see through one set into the other. Uh, and again, that's why we chose to, to change everything last week because we found that. And again, it just managed to solve a lot of problems photography-wise that way because we were able to kind of still have everything in shot and, and still work. It's really interesting that that because I mean naively I was I was kind of assuming you're going to say oh corralling 300 people or whatever it might be was the hardest thing but actually what you're saying is the look and feel you want for the movie is reliant on where you locate where you shoot it and obviously like the old I think it's a William Goldman joke isn't it the writer can just put 50 elephants come over the hill and the producer goes where the bloody hell do I get 50 elephants from you know, and that's kind of like you say, with one one stroke of the pen, ice cream factory, old and decrepit or whatever it might say, you're kinda of like, Right, where do I get that from then? Exactly. But but the, the old decrepit ice cream factory has to have character. That's yeah. the problem. And that's mm. the that was the thing that we needed to because there was a lot of scenes in there. I mean mm. there was some very, very plain scenes in there. For example, when, when um one of the characters gets drugged, it's it, when two characters are speaking and it comes to actually positioning those characters in that set. You don't want them to look awkward. You want them to look relaxed and into the scene, you know. So, you know, the way that we could build up stuff like that, that was important as well so that they could operate, have something to interact with, have something to press maybe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to get, you know, I, I, my worst nightmare would be in front of a green screen saying to an actor, right, pretend this is here because <laughs> you're just asking too much of them. I mean, you know, they come to, you know, they come to say the lines and to build a character and make it believable. They don't come to, you know have to do your job, which is help them work with something. Now, that's a nice segue, that, because my next question was going to be, what's, what, what was your approach, or what is your approach, for getting the best out of your actors? How do you, you know, how much do you give them? How much do you expect from them? Um, well, as I, as I said before, I think it was with this one, because of giving a lot of actors, we had three actors that had never really done a film before, so in that sense, it's putting people that will be, make them confident, and comfortable, really. So when they're in a scene, they can, you know, give them advice and make them feel at ease, really. Uh, yeah. In terms of what we normally do, I, I, I normally, there were so many characters in this. That was the thing for me. Uh, you've got so many people that come from stage that know how to prep and, you know, prep the character. But then you have people, as I say, like Edward, where you really have to. I did a lot of work with Edward because he had a lot of scenes. He had a lot of emotional scenes in it. Yeah. Uh, and so he was the one, really, that I kind of nursed a bit because that was the one that scared me in all honesty if that character didn't work i didn't i felt that the movie wouldn't work at all so when you say you had did a lot of work with him what does that involve for you as a director and, you, and you know we did, a, we did a lot of rehearsing on the phone and on, on skype that we're doing now you know we go through the lines okay um you know I, I would talk about where i was moving the camera as well a lot um also give him examples references uh certain scenes uh like pitches power speeches i mean you know he had one where he 
he blackmails one of the characters in it. And that was, we worked a lot on that because I said, you know, that was the first thing we did. And even on auditions, Edward got to do some rehearsals with Lulu, Amy. So those two were still rehearsing with each other even before we'd done the casting because I wanted to see how those two would work. So when, even before I'd cast Edward, I think I'd cast Amy at that point. Yeah. Put them in the room and I wanted to see how they'd act together and how they looked in frame, you know. Because uh, these characters have had past relationships as well, so you need to believe that. And uh, yeah, so I'd just say it was a lot of prep, and in terms of, I did a lot in the audition process of working with them. Uh, and again, we did a lot in prep week where we did a, a readout and did a few camera tests, and just continued to do a, some rehearsals with Ed uh, and Lino. Lino, played by Christopher Hurd, he had. You know, he'd done his research from day one, really. So when he even came in, he'd read the play and everything, and he knew about the character. We had quite a lot more people uh, auditioning that were suitable for the role hmm. for Lino than we did anyone else. Um, because of the way, he, Lino's the character that is very... Um, he's kind of cut off from society in a way that he, he doesn't like interacting because of confidence issues, maybe. You know, he, he didn't have his mother growing up. You know, he was risen by his father and you know he feels the more uh, insignificant of the two should we say maybe that maybe not supposed to have had Lino after Rocco syndrome so to speak now there's a little point you made there which I think is important for any sort of budding actors listening you, you were saying that they they'd read the they'd read the stage play they they were prepared so from your point of view as a director that 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 kind of confidence from them instills confidence in you I presume yeah yeah, you I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the people that come to the audition, I mean, we had mixtures, you see. Hmm. We had people coming with monologues, and then we had people coming reading from the film itself. Right. Um, so it was, it was nice to see that variation. And then we nailed it down to a, I think we had three callbacks in the end. Hmm. Um, and we nailed it down each time. But then I think the second process was putting actors with other actors to see how they worked. So... I was able to kind of kill two birds with one stone because my time was running out in terms of casting because <laughs> I was I kept going on and on and on. So, but you know, we got the right people for the jobs in the end. Uh, when when you were talking to your cinematographer, then what what were you um, stylistically speaking? Where where were you taking your lead from? Or well, uh, uh, Alan, um, I remember he when we first had the meeting, he was showing me uh, the Hudsucker Proxy, the Coen okay. Brothers. Yeah, yeah. One thing he was showing me, uh, just by the way that they, I mean, there was a very familiar scene, especially in our film, where we establish the factory by the owner Giuseppe walking through it. And mm -hmm. there was a scene very similar in Hudsucker Proxy when one of the employees is walking through, you know, the workplace yeah, and just yeah, yeah. interaction with the different people. And, you know, you, you straight away identifying who he is, what's his role, what he's doing, how high he is in the chain of command, so to speak. So, you know, just the way that he that was shot was very graceful. Uh, and yeah, we we pretty much. I mean, I did I did some sort of some storyboarding, not a huge amount. Uh, but when it came to doing shot list, I think we did it for the first day, and then they just kept lining up every day. So I'd write one, and he'd write one, and then we'd look at them. Because as I say, it, it was it was changing all the time because we we didn't really have much time to do the story. I mean, the shot list, for example, of factory because we changed the set in prep week. Yeah. So it, the layout completely changed, but it also made it very simple because we were able to, as I say, shoot through this, the sets so we could see both the sets, oh, you know, okay. the office and 
so in that way, it was just a case of most days we'd come in and they would line up, both shot lists, what he wanted, what I wanted. Um, and we just worked from there. It was very simple. I mean, a lot of the time, because we were running so so tight in a lot of the scenes, you're only able to really pull three three setups, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then you're pretty much asking for trouble from the first AD. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Well, that, that, I think that's the thing that I learned as well is that also the power of sound mm. with camera trickery. Because I was really, you know, when, when we were pitching for the second unit stuff, I was a bit freaked out that it wouldn't look convincing, but I was quite shocked with how we could do it. Yeah. Uh, and again, we, you know, we were working on a lot of stuff, like just trying to work out creatively, like how would the kids, you know, catch up and how would how would they keep track of the van? And we were just adding stuff like, you know, more creative stuff in the sound. Like the, we, we we pitched a thing in the story where the van's on its last legs anyway in the duration mm-hmm. of the movie. So, uh, you know, we're able to kind of pull that off on sound effects with the engine struggling and it just adds a lot more, you know, tension and it just complements it really brilliant brilliant now now you've had uh, what are we the first week in april now and you've a couple of weeks ago you had a kind of was that a cast and crew screening yeah just a cast and crew screening so what's the what's the plan for getting this film out there now do you know what, what, what's uh, well we've done um we've ed- ed- edited sorry we've entered a few film festivals for example yeah. we've yeah. done the Anzu, edinburgh uh all the other deadlines coming up now we're just on our last sound mix week next week so we're just tweaking all of the sound mix getting all that ready uh and then it's pretty much just getting the film out there showing as many people as possible and uh going to as many festivals i mean it's a, it's a quirky little british drama um it's yeah we're, we're, we're really happy with it okay well fingers crossed from uh, from britflix then um what about yourself then what have you what have you got like I say, you've mentioned stuff off, off off podcast of your own work you've been developing. Is that something you can talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, what we're doing is I'm working at the moment just uh, finishing up a screenplay um, for my next feature. So we're working hard on that, trying to get that ready for May. Has, uh, it, got, has it got a title? It has, but I think it's taken. So the working title is a lodger at the moment. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what it would be. I think that's a horror movie in, in the States. But quite, possibly, quite possibly, quite uh, possibly. So yeah, we're working on that at the moment, and um, in terms of my other project, we are, yeah, one thing that I've kind of held back on, We luckily with this film, we were able to finally get a good composer, which I've been searching for for about five years, mm-hmm. someone that can actually score the way you want them to score. Yeah. Um, so we found that in Dan Drum this year, um, who's from Liverpool, um, he's a composer, and he's, he worked on the score for Angels, and he just did absolutely an incredible job, like... I think that was the another thing that I was so scared of, of creating a feature film but not having a score to go mm. with it. Because a lot of the time when I cut or edit or I even before I even go into a film like I did with this one, I always have a score in my head um, of how it would be. You know, so when you're reading the script, you, you pretty much know the pace of how you would you know want to shoot on the day. Of course, have that reference in your head to, to make you you know remember all the ideas you had when you first initially read it on the page. Mm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in that sense, I'm able to go back and, you know, um, we're going to sort out my last project. Uh, we're not sure what platform, because when I initially did it, you know, platforms were changing. You know, you have YouTube, you have all of these things where, you know, YouTube is a great way of connecting to an audience straight away. And 
I still haven't decided what I'm going to do with it, in all honesty. I'm, I'm sending it to a couple of studios as a feature film, which it is. It's an 89 minute, I think it, just under 90 minutes it is. But what I also had the idea of is it also works incredibly well as a four-part, 20-minute episode, you know. So I don't know yet, so it's just it's working with them. I'm just trying to uh, finish this sound mix off next week and get cracking on that. And um, Has that got a title? Oh, it's on a previous one, yeah, Roots of Reason. Okay. So, yeah. And what's looks, the general gist of that one? The general gist is an origin story of a hitman. Oh, not, okay. Not necessarily done in the Hollywood sense, it's more of a, uh, you know kind of bought into it because of blackmail uh, and but finding out it not necessarily a linear narrative you find out the progression and the origins of the stories that you know um, story progresses what I like to ask everybody is to recommend me a British movie uh, that can be a classic film that's maybe been forgotten or it can be a sort of modern 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 one that maybe just got overlooked because um, you know there's so many films around and British films don't necessarily get the run in the cinema that, that, that it's uh, big studio pictures get. Is there anything that springs to mind for you, Simon? I'm, I'm a big fan of Dead Man's Shoes. Okay. Shane Meadows. Uh, I think he's, uh, yeah, he's brilliant, isn't he? I mm. mean, that's the, I don't know, there's, there's so many decent, I mean, in terms of, yeah, that's the one thing, when you, when you sent me that, um, when you asked my question, it's the first thing that goes into my mind is Shane Meadows, because he has such a, a British kind of like charm to his films I think in a really weird way that's in my I mean I, I did a um, 10 best British horror films for Britflix of which I included Dead Man's Shoes in my selection oh really yeah 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 I mean it's a great movie and I think it's a it's a it's 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 a modern I think it's a modern horror movie I mean it's not a traditional horror movie but it's a horror movie like Straw Dogs is a horror movie yeah very much actually. you know it's about that you know the claustrophobia of the of 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 the small town where because if you think about it, we don't in that film you don't really see anybody other than the characters yet it's in a built up suburban environment. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just yeah, I just think the pace to it is just incredible. The way it's just slowly paced and then it's just when it all comes together at the end with the tea, it's just brilliant. No, it's terrifying. And I I I, I rewatched re it after sort of making my kind of recommendation for it, and I've forgotten that kind of almost like. Almost like it's it's it has a regular pace all the way through. Then when you get that person, we go and see that person that's now left the crowd, as it were, and that changes the whole direction of the movie, as it were. Because before it was just like here's a bunch of horrible people, here's a man seeking revenge for something, and he's you know, and we learn that they've really abused his brother. But what we don't think is that there's another bloke that was involved that we've not met yet. And I just love that kind of thing about nobody gets forgiven. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, as I say, it's brilliant. In fact, when that first came out, I was working part-time um, in a coffee shop, mm. um, trying to fund, as I say, my first film. And um, I remember when um, this guy, I'd only watched it a few few days before, and this guy came up to me, and he's just like, uh, was doing doing his order. And it was the guy uh, who plays one of the characters. And really? It's a scene in the, 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 the tea scene. When the guy is so off his face, he's halfway slumped down the wall. He can't hardly, he's not hardly conscious. And he looks at, um, looks at me and says, are you the devil? That's right. Just, oh, before, right. just before he takes him out. And yeah. I said to the guy, it was that guy, and I said to him, because I didn't want to say, because I forgot the character's name. So I was just like, I said to him, do you know Shea Meadows? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I just thought, I said, are you in Dead Man's Shoes? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that's one of the best execution scenes, <laughs> in my opinion, ever. 
Uh, and he was just like, yeah. He said, you know, Shane? I was like, no, I wish, mate. I wouldn't be working here if I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thank you very much for your time on the podcast and good luck with the film. Excellent. Thank you very much, Stuart. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.